Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. Today we have Stephanie Wan with us. Stephanie is an international business development and government relations manager and has been supporting the US and other international government agencies on mapping space technologies and applications to other sectors. She has a background in international relations and science and technology policy. And Stephanie currently works for IM Systems Group that provides environmental modeling and intelligence support to NOAA and other agencies. Stephanie is currently based in Washington, DC. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Great to be here. Wonderful. Thanks. Your career path is quite amazing, right? It's very unlike a lot of space professionals. You have worked across multiple geographies with several government and private organizations. So can you talk a bit about your journey and what really brought you into space? Yeah. So I started out with an international relations degree, as you've mentioned. I caught the travel bug. I actually started out uh, as a Rotary Youth Exchange student in high school going to Japan for a year and later on I thought that'd be like the coolest job ever to be a diplomat or like to travel around the world and essentially part of that included part of my degree I got study abroad credit for going you know abroad so I studied in like Belgium learning about NATO and like the EU policies to to China at Beijing University and International Space University in Barcelona but part of that I really wanted to forge connections in space and unfortunately, there's not a real job title. Like when I was starting out in in the space sector, there's like the Office of International Relations at NASA, which was where I got my first internship. But beyond, and then there's uh, the State Department with the Office of uh, Space and Advanced Technologies. I think it's now called the Office of Space Affairs. But yeah, that that's mainly the reason why I don't really have that traditional career path. You can't really sign up to be like, okay, if you do four years of engineering and then two years of a master's, you then get a career in like an engineer, like you apply and get a job as an engineer. And it really was fortuitous that when I took my first uh, space policy course at the Space Policy Institute at George Washington University, I happened to sit next to a guy who happened to work at NASA and he worked on GPS, which the global navigation satellite systems and back in the day i didn't know what gps was i just thought the international space station was really cool that's like the epitome of international cooperation so i turned to him and was like oh are there any international co-op- how can i do international cooperation in space there's a whole area and in space is very international and i got an internship uh through him and and working at the uh, NASA external relations office, the international relations office, as well as his office within the space communications and navigation area and and focusing on GPS. Little did I know GPS, we all know this work. We know what all know what GPS does, like it's navigation, but it's also not just positioning, it's also navigation timing. And it's part of our entire infrastructure in the world from banking to the timing and like I don't know your when you get gas like on your receipts it's all it's all interconnected and the coolest thing was that's I got access to UN meetings and and also seeing how countries work together to be interoperable and compatible so all these countries that we sometimes think that we're competitors <laughs> 
we have to still work to, with each other because we don't want to cause any jamming or spectrum interference. And we all want to make sure it improves all our lives. So that's a cool thing about space. No matter how much there are politics against each other, like different countries, we could still work in the space sector and facilitate things. Despite all the headline news, like we still have to make things happen and make sure satellites don't hit each other. They don't enter, they don't jam each other because that causes a much larger political issue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wow. That's, uh, that's awesome. You worked across so many um, geographies, actually. And, uh, and you talk about space policy, right? So space, space policy is one of these areas that's not quite understood. So but can you tell us what exactly is space policy and what does someone working in space policy actually do? I, I guess... Space policy, essentially, it's, at least in the U.S., it's a little bit different than, I guess, Europe or other countries where we, we separate out space, like policy and law. So I guess in Europe, whatever is, you guys focus on the law aspect and what's like really written down in the treaties, whereas in the U.S., we, with our four-year system, we, we have different things that are written out with a direction on within the governments on how to go forward in, in, in different areas besides space. And within that, the past administration was very active in developing a lot of the space policy directives that outline whether it's space exploration, like humans in space, uh, space situational awareness. And it within that focuses on where the U.S. should be directed and heading and where all the agencies should align themselves to to make this happen short and long term. When so, for example, what I focused on uh, when I spent some time at the State Department was space object registering space objects because right now we have an issue with space situational awareness. We, we have transformed the space field, everything in space. It used to be all governmental, then it became commercial as well. And now with mega constellations, how do we continue to track the liability and also keep US the US promises to international treaties? Within the Space Policy Direct 3, which was which where I was focused on, they wrote that down, like it's all an interagency thing on how to move this um, all forward in in the, down the pipeline with different taskings as well. So it provides that guideline on on how to move forward. Sorry if that was like a little winded <laughs> and if that made sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So coming back to space policy, yeah. Space policy, yes, of course, it's quite complex. I can only imagine how complex it, it, it would be. But can you talk a little bit about how space policy is different across geographies? Because you worked in, maybe you can contrast with Europe and I don't know, Asia Pacific and the US. That That is definitely a challenging question because... Sometimes like it, I almost feel like I did a lot of just hands-on activities in, in the space sector versus like drafting the space policies. So for example, like Japan, they, they've been focused on trying to encourage commercial space in their country. I do not know like the latest documents that have been coming out of Japan specifically, they use this as they work with what the U.S. has. Normally, they mimic a lot of what the U.S. Uh, 
policies are to encourage space cooperation and encourage um, space development and, and commercialization. And they draft their own to provide their own guidelines on how they want to invest in space, how maybe the laws within their country can help facilitate, encourage that growth, whether it's financially or or legally speaking, to work within those UN, within those uh, UN confines, like the UN treaties that they signed, and then they basically trickle down into the strategy. It's all strategy, like policy strategy, and then they promote it out. So I'm not fully sure how to. Sometimes the policies are a little bit not as um available. It comes out you know, every few years, but it's at least a good direction for how governments want to operate within their current administrations. Okay, okay. interesting. D- did you see any cultural differences across geographies? Of course, there would be cultural differences in terms of working, work ethic and uh, other aspects. But did you see any cultural uh, differences impacting the policy making across geographies? Uh, yes, I guess in certain countries where they like to maybe structure things where they have to have all the departments in agreement first. And then once they put together a package, it might take much longer time, but it's a lot more flushed out. Whereas certain other countries, I'm trying not to name names, <laughs> just, in, because, just not to hurt anyone's feelings there, but some, some might have more like a political situation where maybe one ministry of like science and technology wants to take lead and whereas it's not maybe the space agency is in charge so they might just put something out without the full i guess agreement of the government but then other agencies have to all buy in afterwards so it is complex where there are politic internal politics involved and that also impacts how they might cooperate overseas with other countries because I've seen that slight struggle for power. This happens in the U.S. too. But they have, I think, sometimes less defined areas of engagement. And since space is a very hot topic, sometimes certain countries have different departments that want to take lead. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, can o- I can only understand that. Uh, imagine, yes, of course. Uh, just like politics, right? Like politics is so different across geographies. I would think policymaking likewise would be so complex. So it's like similar to like you said, you worked at Israel and Antrix, they have two different arms too. One, Israel is more the policy arm, correct? And then, but Antrix is more the commercial arm, but they only, they don't touch really policy. And that's, and that's something completely different from, I think, countries like the U.S. would have. Yes, yes. So I I think we've spoken enough about policy. Maybe I'll come back to policy later. Now, speaking, uh, coming back a little bit to your current work where you try to uh, offer a lot of intelligence services and support other um, agencies and also a little bit on your previous work drawing from all that, what are your top three examples of space technology supporting other sectors? Oh, my favorite one is GPS. (laughs) Because that is everywhere and, and everything, you hold it in your hand, it's in your phone. At least for me, I am very directionally challenged, even with a GPS sometimes. That makes but, the two of us. <laughs> yeah, and I, I really, I, I think that one doesn't need any explanation, but it is in our financial systems. It is in 
it, it, it is the timing is so pivotal because it's all tuned to the same um, exact time across the world to make sure that in the stocks, that split second difference makes, you know, either you a million dollars or $500,000. So that's the first one. And then now with my current company, weather satellites, like meteorology, all of these in the US, if you go back to some of the older transcripts on the Hill, people, these politicians would be like, why do I need GPS? I have my TomTom. And, or like, I have my Garmin. And, or like, why do I need weather satellites? I have the weather channel. And they don't realize these huge impacts that play a role like in them, whether or, no they, whether or not they know their weather forecast or that those signals that you cannot see take you from point A to point B. And I think that's where it's really important to understand, convey to the policymakers how space really impacts your everyday life. My third favorite Topic is communication satellites. I worked in the Space Common Navigation Office, so I do have a very fun, that's a very fun topic in my heart. But without these space, the satellite communications, all these astronauts can't phone home. Or your most important data, if it's not available, like it's all space junk. Those satellites are essentially space junk. And, and so those are definitely some pivotal things. I'm excited to see how the future of like laser communications and also like the, all these mega constellations, they will impact how we uh, facilitate communications in the future. Um, but like you said, I think most countries and even the US and Europe where a lot of space activity happens, there are a lot of uh, space skeptics, I would say, people who are not really convinced about all the funding earmarked for space, even though it's a teeny tiny portion of the GDP or of the uh, the annual budget. Now with the COVID, right, with the with the COVID introducing a lot of uh, financial obligations and a lot of financial strain into the budget allocations of countries, what areas of space do you think would be of the most importance? What would be the next focus areas in space in terms of funding for different countries? I would say, I mean, we already fund a lot for climate change and med- and hopefully more weather satellites. And, and, and we already have, I think, a decent amount of funding for GPS. I, I would say communications. I, I I really like internet, like in space. And we have a lot of Earth observation satellites already. I think the startup sectors are doing a fantastic job with that. So I think the main thing is for us to really investigate or even invest in technology, space technologies that also help people back on Earth. For example, uh, there's a non-for-profit that recently started up in Australia called Arose. And they are basically trying to work with non-space actor, like non-space organizations to connect their technologies or, or space technologies from that can be applied back on Earth to enhance uh, manufacturing or other sectors. It's taking place in Australia because they have a large mining sector over there. And so how can space technology or vice versa be aided in space. That's where I love about, that's really where I really love about space, connecting space and earth together. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, 
Of course, that's really fun. Yeah, and then I'd like to come back to one of my favorite all-time questions that I try to ask a lot of people, which is U.S., for example, U.S. is where most of the space activity is going on, and that's where all the super awesome projects and the super awesome work in space is going on. But unfortunately, the space sector in the U.S. is closed to non-sit. So do you see at some point in the near future where it might open up to non-citizens, like in Europe, for instance? That is definitely a tricky question because we, so if you look at, I guess, U.S. history, you see a lot of, I think, corporate espionage, which is really cause of that fear of opening up the those like ITAR issues into other countries. So unless the laws change, it's very challenging to do. But if you look at like Japan, they have a they had a lot more flexibility even in hiring foreign nationals. And and I think that's the same too in like Australia. So like newer space countries would have more of a flexibility to reshape their laws. I am not sure with the politicians in place that we would be able to ever get to that point. Unless, uh, and with the previous administration, it was definitely very challenging for even foreigners to be in the country. So I think it would really, I, I don't think this would be happening in the U.S. anytime soon, sadly enough. You would have to be, I think, a green card holder or, or a citizen. Yeah, hopefully sometime in future. One can only hope. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think there's a very good justification of having internationals working in the U.S. sector, workforce. Like, we we have so many jobs that are necessary to be filled in the STEM workforce. And a lot of them come from Ph.D. students studying in the U.S., that get green cards afterwards. And if we could just facilitate that again to encourage, I think, foreign nationals to invest their time and their knowledge in the US, that it's definitely beneficial. And we're just recovering from the previous administration. And it's gonna take time. Yeah, certainly, because because on one hand, one thinks the other ecosystems, Europe or Australia, like you said, the new ones, or Japan, they greatly benefit from a widely available talent from across the world. Yeah, and if you look at the U.S. I think STEM workforce, it at least NASA, a lot of them are aging and retiring, and so I guess most of the, and the most of the talent then goes to new space startups. So you definitely need to fill those gaps in knowledge. And I'm not sure if the U.S., even though we talk about fixing this problem, I'm not sure if we have enough of that political and economic motivation, motivational like push to, to make it happen yet. I really hope yeah, I mean, so. Any big change needs either political motivation or an economic, uh, either political or an economic motivation. Right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Actually, what's also interesting is your your current work the and your current company. So I am Systems Group that provides a lot of this modeling and GIS intelligence data or analytics, perhaps, to NOAA and other agencies. So can you talk about what exactly this means? Like how? Because as someone would understand, NOAA is someone who has a lot of weather satellites and other imaging satellites at their disposal. 
So why would they require somebody like IAM Systems Group to provide you with this kind of intelligence? So essentially, IAM Systems Group is a contracting company to, to NOAA. So we have a ton of PhDs to help in-house, help on-site support for NOAA with all the modeling at the National Weather Service. I actually sit at the corporate levels. I'm not that talented, so I only get to hear what everyone tells me, like about about all the weather work. And I mean, I feel like you don't. You should always consult one of these guys, like if you have a friend that works in these fields, about before you buy a home, because <laughs> you think about climate change and like how it affects a town or even like your building. I you. Yeah, I just highly recommend people like and what I've heard, like a whole town got flooded in Maryland just because of the way it was built and the water like flowed right into the center of town, flooding the buildings. But um, going back to IM system, they're just meteorologists or like they do all the modeling, meteorological modeling to support NOAA. And that's the interesting thing about agencies like like NASA too. NOAA, like they they have a lot of contractors, on-site contractors to do most of the work. And so that's how IM Systems Group is so involved in in working at NOAA because they're one of the top, I think, five or 10 contractors, on-site contractors for the agency. Additionally, the company a few years ago also focused on, on aviation weather because there's a different atmospheric uh, modeling involved with aviation, like what pilots have to fly through in landing planes or taking off versus what we feel on the ground. So as a result, a lot of that business is overseas in the Asia Pacific because they don't have the same level of weather data as in the U.S. So when, so the company basically applies a lot of their models and also the country's internal models to try and enhance their weather availability or like the weather decision-making process, especially at airports. Uh, and moving forward, because the current administration is so focused, the current presidential administration, Biden, is so focused on climate change. I think the company has a role to play with all the environmental intelligence data and experience that they've been gathering over the years to help maybe aid in that effort. I think they've used different terms like tactical intelligence, weather intelligence, or like environmental intelligence. It's all buzzwords. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, speaking of what you mentioned previously, right? Like how come potential uh, home buyers do not consult these guys, Noah? I'm really surprised that there is no startup yet that offers these services to potential home buyers. How future proof or how weather proof is your locality? There, there are, I think, websites that tell about, talk about like future flooding. They, they track future flooding or potential future flooding and actually look that up because I'm the president of my, the homeowners association of my um, condo. And we do have these floods and we do have, we're built in a swamp. Like Washington DC is built on a swamp. So how do we like consider this like on our land and ensuring there's no like future landslides based upon the geography. And honestly, like we had a geotechnical engineer come in to our community and we asked the word climate change and he essentially gave a very like, how do I call it? A vague answer that 
was like, oh, over time things move, but it's nothing like special. <laughs> like I was like, oh great, we just hired a climate change denier or like non-believer into facilitating some of the geotechnical needs of our community. <laughs> But yeah, as I become more involved with the city or like reading up on city politics, it the idea of climate change is real to, to mayors and they're trying to at least find a way to reduce like flooding or, or redirect it. And I could always connect you to, to I think, a new startup out there in a couple of months that might oh, be wow. looking into this. That would be awesome. <laughs> I'd love to know about it. Wow. And um, circling a little back, can, can you talk about your work? Because you mentioned that you work mostly in the corporate aspect of IM Systems Group. So what, what is it that you work on? And yeah, what is it that you work on? I guess what I feel like this is one of those uh, big questions right now because my company hired me originally to because of my space background. My CEO really liked space because he worked in the Apollo missions back, I think in the seventies or so. And, and he thought space was cool. So he thought it would be great to see where the company can do more space activities. I also thought I was coming into the co company, I think doing more out education outreach, maybe in the Vietnamese Vietnam region, because they were building a space museum and I wanted to be involved with that. My passion is education outreach. So it's like a little bit of, they hired me, but not really sure. I just fit in or I just try and do anything possible for the company. And I ended up actually, after I left NASA, State Department wanted me to stay on for another year or a year or two. And they, so I spent the, my first few years with this company actually just on site at State Department working with the Space Enterprise Summit. I led the first, I guess, event between State Department and Department of Commerce to facilitate uh, better conversations on how commercial companies can be a bit more involved with the governments, especially as I think policies were changing and we needed better communication besides the previous historically like large organizations that are out there. So after that time ended, I basically spent more time helping the company look at strategies to, or figuring out where their technology lies, first of all, and their technology, the company's assets, and also maybe where they want to go. Because the first thing is, how do you start, a, there's an ongoing joke, how do you make a billion in space? You, like, yeah, how do you make, yeah. So how do you make a million in space? You start off with a billion. And I don't think our company has a billion to start off with, but I think it was trying to explore how we could collaborate with other companies that have assets that may want to, we might want to marry together. And so that was part of my job to also like, because of my background in knowing the different space companies out there to explore those types of relationships. Secondly, I, because of my international relations background, and that's really where my my strengths are i help support the company with some of their membership activities on the u.s asean business council so from there i worked with i think promoting the company at different embassies because we live in dc we work we like did a lot of engagement 
with embassies that are based in Washington, D.C. from like the Southeast Asian nations, ASEAN for uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar, Singapore, Thailand, to to see where, again, this goes back to the business, our company's aviation weather activities. So how we could maybe sell products and help those countries with their aviation weather. And Asia has a lot of airports that are getting built right now, pre-COVID. It might have taken a slight pause, but the Asia, Southeast Asia has a lot of potential for more tourism. And all these countries are increasing their airport growth and airport usage. And that includes how much delay is involved with their flights. And that would cost fuel and also time on the on turnover. So if we were able to help those countries be a bit more economical with their intelligence, that would be very value added for the countries. Wow, wow, that's uh, that's very interesting. And what's <laughs> it's not as spacey as I no, want it to it's, be. Um, I guess <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me actually because all these right, like on, on an everyday basis, you would do all these things and the problems that you're trying to solve or the solutions you come up to meet your targets or whatever, these are, uh, I find them quite creative because unlike for an engineer or I don't know, like a scientist, you don't really have a very clear, you don't have a clear, for instance, if it's an engineer, it's okay, make this work within these constraints. It's very set. Uh, Or for a scientist, okay, you have this apparatus, you need to uh, make sure you either try to replicate some results or you try to disprove something prove something, it's again, still bound by a few boundary conditions and everything. But for you, it's very vague. The problem itself is so vague and then you have to come up with a solution. So how do you, how does your brain work? How do you try to figure this out? It's awful. I think it's definitely challenging and sometimes it's more fun to work within certain level of constraints. But I guess even when I was at NASA, I just saw gaps that could be fixed. For example, when I was at NASA, I was in in NASA scans, the Space Common Navigation Office. I was in charge of counting. Let me step back. So when I was at NASA, I was in charge of the Space Ops Conference and part, it was going to be held overseas. And part of I think you've heard of all these like NASA restrictions, like with international conferences, it's a political thing. So you could only be, it's some variants of, you can only have 50 NASA civil servants and maybe 50 contractors at an international conference. And we had to make sure it's a legal thing. It happened like years ago when I think an IAC was happening in Naples, Italy. And someone called out and claimed that it's instead of like a vacationing opportunity for NASA people to go to Italy with their families. So politicians thought this was outrageous and decided to implement a rule on how many NASA people can attend. Wow. Okay. So over time, yeah, it's ridiculous. And when you think about it, NASA has 10 10 NASA centers, right? So when you then break it down to what, five per person, five per center, if you want to be equal, that's never equal. But after that, it becomes, of course, the most senior people want to go because it's a great chance for them to engage with more partnerships and networking. So you never get the young professionals available and they, you can't, because 
there's no way they're going to send what, a 25, 30 year old to an international conference if you only have 50 spots. And, and so this is how it came about. And I was in charge of, of I think, making sure for space offs that there were 50, 50 NASA people that were able to attend and who gets ranking and everything. And part of this gap, I, they, we were organizing a space ops one year and they wanted to charge students, I think $500 to attend a week long conference. Yeah. When you say, wow, it's cause it's a lot even. And so like, I raised my hand, I'm like, Actually, as a recently graduated student who has a lot of student loans, I don't think they can afford $500 to attend a space conference. Even without, even a European student with zero student debt would never spend $500. Okay, this is how expensive DC is. $500 got me a tiny room in a basement apartment in a shared four-bedroom place in Washington, DC at that time. And that's, yeah, that's always a little sketchy situation. $500, yeah, this is how much, that's basically like a month of rent for me. And that's a lot. And so luckily, I was very fortunate to have the NASA person go, if you have ideas, figure it out. Maybe I was like, we can ask the Office of Education for, for money. And so I started looking around, trying to piece together, okay, where can I find money? I guess I'm really good at trying to find money <laughs> in, in partnerships. So I was able to convince the Office of Education to give money to this cause because these are American students. And this goes back to policy. And within Office of Education and NASA policy and all the strategy documents, we want to encourage next generation workforce. Perhaps they can donate some money for scholarships for students. Then next, I was like, okay, where else can we find more money for students? Then I worked with the conference organizers, AIAA at the time, to be like, can if students are able to volunteer some of their time, can they get the at least a conference fee waived? They agreed to that. And so that's how like we had a hodgepodge of like at least money available for these potential students to come and attend this already small conference. And this meant then I had to create programming because I want these students not just to get access. I want them to make sure that they become future space operation professionals, like space ops professionals. And they, it's like a 500 person conference. It's really small. So that means they're like an aging crowd potentially as well. So you want next generation to really attend this conference, become an create a whole network of partnerships, collaborate together so that maybe in the future they can work on future, you know, future missions together. And, and yeah, I, then the people at JPL to put together some, get some speakers, do like a speed mentoring event, and then also do a tour of JPL, which I think a lot of students are usually quite excited about because who you don't really get that type of access unless someone. Yeah, all in all, it was a bit of a hit. It was, it's still like, like a 25 students and young professionals attended, but it was impressive enough that this conference happens every other year. So the following year, then the next organizers took it upon themselves to also continue this tradition. And I was there to aid it. So this goes back into like my mindset. I see gaps and I just, I see benefits on fixing it. So I guess, and right now I see a huge gap with the next generation workforce. And I just, there's so many policies or like areas of encouragement to say that we are lacking the next generation STEM workforce. And there's been different ways to tackle it. And, and 
some of it has been at the individual company level and also some at the agency level, like NASA level. And then some, like we've had different groups of uh, friends, I would say, in, in the space sector that spun out their own fellowships to connect even internships and mentorship opportunities together for different groups. Like, yeah, so some of them that come to mind, the first famous one is Brooke Owens Fellowship, then the Matthew Sakowitz Fellowship, then uh, the Patty Gray Smith Fellowship, and then um, the most recent one is the Zed Factor Fellowship. So one was targeted for women in in STEM or just women in space sector. Then um, the Matthew Sakowitz is more for like business, like going into like business industry for space sector. Third, Patty Gray Smith is for African Americans, and then Zed Factor is for underrepresented uh, communities. And then also the future space leaders, which is more not internships, but more helping you get those networking opportunities and experience at different conferences around the world. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely very important to have this kind of lower the barrier of entry for the next generation workers. That's very true. Or just, and just gaining that experience. I mean, it's, the space sector right now, it's still all about networking and gaining the experience. And it's great to see this side of things, right? Because this everybody benefits, every student into space, networks and works around space. They benefit from these kind of opportunities, but rarely do we get to see what really goes on behind the scenes to facilitate all this. So that's, that's cool. That's awesome. And so you would say that someone would need a lot of creativity to think out of the box and to solve these kind of problems. So basically what you came up with is a very out of the box solution, right? For a problem that's for, for a problem that not many people recognized it as a problem. So you identified something as a problem and came up with an out of the box solution. So is this the kind of skill set someone needs to work, to do the work that you do, you know, in space policy or the kind of areas you work in? I think so. You need some creativity, but you also need to have the right group of people that are willing to buy in and sponsor your ideas too. And I was very fortunate that I've worked with people that are open and minded enough for me to point out problems and, and also try and find a fix to wow. it. So networking, that boils down to networking again, making the right relationships, building the right relationships. And having people put trust in you. And as in, if you have a proven capability to work hard and give examples of how you can fix an issue, it, it, it really boils down to those two things and then having those champions okay. for you. Wow. Interesting. So what skill set, what others, okay, these are the soft skills that someone would need. In addition, what skill set would someone require to get into space policy or work with government or supporting private entities to participate in formulating, I would say, space policy? I think you need to have an open mind, have a more of a cross-cultural relation, like communications background. And I hear sometimes, at least we all know, it's sometimes a little bit frustrating when you're so used to working with a certain culture, how things work, and then suddenly you're thrown talking with someone from a completely different environment. They have grown up completely different from you. And, and so they have a completely different perspective. And for maybe they disagree with you, but you need to understand why and, and like how to, I guess, 
work through that to find a mutual common ground of understanding. And I think this is what's pivotal in any position nowadays when we're such a global, with the globalization, that you need to know that we're all one big melting pot on earth, or at least a salad on earth. At least in the U.S., we call it a melting pot. But I think, and then I think it got reverted, changed to we're all one big salad bowl, like a salad, like instead of a melting pot, because we have our differences and we just have to, we, but we all, you know, work together to, for the same cause. And yeah, I I think like I learned a lot of these skills when I was um, part of the Space Generation Advisory Council. Well, I'm still part of it, I guess. Uh, I'm an honorary board member now, but I've learned to work with people across cultures uh, and and really apply it because international relations as a background is great as you study the theory and everything, but hands-on application of working with people from around the world on a common goal, whether it's small project groups or like going to attend the same events or organizing the same events, y'all have the same mission. You have to make sure it you find a way to work together to to make that happen. And and I think that's one of the best things. If you want to build soft skill sets, work in that international environment and learn how to work with people. And also, also uh, it helps you learn more about yourself too and your leadership, how, how you go about um, developing your own leadership skills. Okay, that's interesting. And what kind of degrees or what kind of professional education would someone require? I think it's all application. Really, it's great that you can study. As an engineer, definitely, if you're going to become an engineer, you better know your stuff. But besides that, it, it really boils down to volunteering your time or doing internships, uh, depending on your circumstances and what's available, and and honing those people skills. Because... I think one of the most famous Mars mission projects, they had a crash landing because they thought they got the metric system measurements from. Yeah, this was one of the the early ones, right? One of the beginning, yeah. Yeah, essentially, all of this boils down to what skills you need. You just need practice. You you just need hands-on experience. So the best, the, the I think the best way to achieve that is through volunteering your time or, or interning and gaining that experience, working with people, gaining that network and, and proving your, to um, the people around you and yourself that, you know, you can do work. Okay. That's the Mars Climate Orbiter. I just Googled it in 1999. Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was insane. <laughs> Interesting. So if young professionals or space enthusiasts want to get in touch with you, Stephanie, what's the best? Absolutely. Either shoot me a LinkedIn message. Don't just add me, really. Just like also write something. I know some people just like to click add. Put some effort into it, guys. The other thing is shoot me an email at stephanied.wan at gmail.com. But I think even connecting with you, Rachana, like if anyone wants to yeah i completely agree with the random linkedin requests um people just adding you and then yeah (laughs) i've written a post about it 
I mean, maybe I'm just suspicious. Uh, maybe I'm just a little bit suspicious about people because of like the areas that I've worked in. Again, space. It's sometimes a national security issue. Like, why is this some random person wanting to add me or have me add them to their uh, LinkedIn groups? Like, at least talk with me. Tell me your aspirations, your hopes, and your dreams. I'm I'm more than happy to help. Um, yeah, it's been a very unique conversation for me because I the kind of things that you talked about is something that I never really thought about from this perspective. So. Thank you so much for sharing all your experiences and your insights. They're so unique. They're so interesting. Thank you very much, Stephanie. It was great to be on this podcast. And I like one final thing, like when you think about engineers and scientists about the work, they need to work hand in hand closely with policymakers and or like this, the people with that policy communications background, because you need to know where your funding comes from. If you cannot explain the value of your work and how it brings financial or, or like social benefit to society, then you won't get the money. And I think this is where it's really sometimes, yeah, when you go back to, I guess, the value of like education or like what people need to study, that is really get I don't know how, but get that part down and you will you will have a very successful career. Yeah, I completely agree. Space itself is a, a small bubble and within that bubble, we have these engineers and scientists doing the tech part of it in an even tinier bubble. This is one of the reasons I try to bring people and at, at different, working on different aspects of the space value chain on the podcast so we have a, a decently good picture, overall picture of the entire ecosystem. Yeah, it's really exciting. I think you had a lot of really great topics that you discussed and people might not get access to those types of experts because they are in their own conference bubbles of like topics that they need to focus on. But whenever they check through your podcast, they could learn so much. And thank you so much for giving your time on a Monday morning. It's quite early for you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on here.